Hello everyone, uh, welcome to this SEN event um, on the topic of a greener global Britain, reducing our environmental footprint overseas. Um, my name is Sam Hall, I'm the director of the Conservative Environment Network. Um, the Conservative Environment Network is a network of MPs and peers, of Conservative councillors and of supporters. And if you're a councillor or a supporter and you want to join our network, please go on our website, sen.uk.com uh, and become part of our family of eco-Tories. Um, we're delighted uh, to be partnering with uh, WWF for this event um, and we're very grateful to them for their, for their kind sponsorship. Um, firstly, a little bit about the, the structure of the event. So we've got an hour. Um, each of our uh, speakers will give three to five minutes of opening remarks um, and then we'll then go to question and answer. Uh, please be thinking of questions for the panellists and whilst you're listening to them, you can submit them via the question and answer function. Um, we'll be monitoring them and then we'll put them to the panellists um, uh, once we've had the opening remarks. Um, and then just to briefly introduce the theme before I turn to introduce each of our panellists. Um, so I think it's now widely accepted that we have a responsibility to conserve the environment here in Britain. Um, and we've been making lots of progress on that front. We've been tackling single-use plastics, we've been um, setting new biodiversity targets through the Environment Bill, creating a nature recovery network, reforming farm subsidies. There's obviously lots more to do, um, but there's a clear kind of policy consensus and a package of measures that is looking to improve the domestic environment. But I think an area that we haven't had as much focus on historically um, has been looking at the UK's global footprint um, and acknowledging the fact that we do have a responsibility to repair the environment in other countries. Um, which often can be harmed by the consumption of certain products here in the UK, um, but whose impacts we don't necessarily see uh, here. Um, and I think this is a potentially very exciting uh, new mission for Global Britain. Um, with our global leadership role on climate, um, the presidencies uh, of the G7 and the UNFCCC, which the UK has uh, in 2021, and indeed our new independent trade policy as a result of Brexit, I think we have uh, both the means and the opportunity to really lead on this. Um, the government's made some good uh, starts uh, on this. Uh, so the Global Resource Initiative was a task force that's been set up to look at some of uh, these issues and how we can reduce our global environmental footprint. Um, recently, the government also published a consultation uh, looking at how, uh, how companies can tackle deforestation in their supply chains. Um, so I hope that we can discuss some of those proposals uh, as part of this panel uh, as part of this panel session um, uh, with our with our excellent panelists. So now I'd like to, without further ado, turn to our first panelist, uh, who is Anthony Brown. Uh, Anthony is the MP for South Cambridgeshire. He chairs the APBG for the Environment. Uh, he also serves on the Treasury Select Committee, and he's a member of the SEN Parliamentary Caucus. Uh, over to you, Anthony. Sam, thank you very much. And uh, I should say that the minister introduced this. State is trying to get through to us on the link. I've just sent him uh, uh, a new version of the link. Um, I'm, I'm very glad you're doing this event because, uh, as you said in your introduction, it's absolutely um, right that we do everything to put our own house in order within the UK. Uh, huge challenges there. We are making some progress. Uh, I'm sure we'll make uh, an awful lot more. But actually, the UK is a very uh, is a small country, which is one percent of the world population. Um, but we have a, a huge influence on the world, and I've seen this um, throughout my career when I was environment editor of the Observer and then the Times. That actually, people around the we people around the world look to the UK far more than often we really realise uh, as a as, as a 
as an influencer of things that uh, should should be done. And uh, I think we can actually use our influence and should use our influence far more internationally to try and uh, improve environmental goals uh, around the world. Um, so we have, if you look at the history of different environment groups and movements, actually the UK has been incredibly influential. It was a founder of many of the main sort of international uh, environment groups and will certainly uh, become a driving force uh, in a lot of them. And things like the, uh, I did a lot of reporting on the, uh, the International Whaling Commission, uh, whaling ban, for example. And we were a very big whaling nation in our days. You know, we've, we've certainly sinned on that front. But also then we have been more recently uh, very much a driving force in making sure that that, that meritorium, the whaling ban uh, stays in place. And if you look at the two, the two main issues of biodiversity and climate change, which are the sort of main focus for me, um, on climate change, we've, um, I'm sure you've done many separate sessions about what the UK has done as the UK, but we are only about 1%, just over 1% of global uh, carbon dioxide emissions. Um, and we, I think, and we should absolutely you know, get that down to zero. Uh, but we should also use our, the, our influence to try and help the world as a whole uh, get become carbon neutral, partly by leading by example, because obviously you've got a lot more credibility if you actually do, uh, if you don't just preach uh, to others without actually doing it yourself. We now have the, um, the COP26. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions about that which we are absent of, delayed by year. Uh, that, that's a huge chance for us to help uh, and encourage and persuade other countries to uh, actually have uh, a target, not just have targets in place, but actually the pathways to those targets uh, as countries maybe try and become legally binding. One of the areas I've been focusing on is uh, greening finance. I did a, a session with uh, Mark Carney recently. He's not just governor of the Bank of England, former governor of the Bank of England, but is the finance advisor to COP26. And this is uh, an incredibly ambitious program to really re-engineer the whole global financial system so that it pushes towards the net zero target rather than sort of resists it. And it's very, very uh, important uh, move huge amounts of work to do there. But as the global financial center, or, or one of the two main global financial centers, the UK is in a really, really powerful position to really lead that and really push for the whole financial system to push towards net zero and make it easier for other countries uh, to reach that target. Um, we're also a very big uh, donor uh, of um, aid in the world, obviously, um, with our 0.7% uh, target. And I certainly would support using that international aid donations uh, far more to uh, promote environmental aims. I know we do a bit already, but I think we probably could do uh, an awful lot more. Just make sure that it's a bit more sort of integrated with, uh, you know, habitat preservation in other countries uh, and so on. Because habitat loss is obviously a huge, huge issue in many other countries. In the UK, we've largely lost most of our habitat already, but I'm going to try and get it back. But it's uh, habitat loss is huge elsewhere. Uh, but also the, uh, the, the diplomatic uh, influence we have is, again, utterly enormous um, and partly for historic links. But we've got one of the most uh, um, influential diplomatic calls in the world. Um, I just give one example. When I was environment, environment editor of The Observer, uh, I went with Tony Juniper, who was then um, director of Friends of the Earth and is now um, chair of Natural England. Um, to India to uh, uh, train up environmental journalists. There weren't any environmental journalists there. This was paid for by the British Council. They realized there was no such thing as environmental journalism in India. So we, we got all the journalists that were interested in it uh, and uh, potentially interested in it. And sort of, I talked to them about environmental journalism in the UK. And it actually led to lots of journalists then becoming specialized in environmental issues in, in, uh, in India. And that was just the, the soft power we had, funded by the British Council, you know, funded by the British state. Uh, and uh, definitely a, an absolute uh, force for good. 
so we should we, there's a lot more we can do in this whole area but we should definitely think about this as a key part of our environmental improvement is our international influence and the levers that we hold and i'm sure that's more than three or five minutes so i better shut up and the secretary of state's just texted me again saying he's trying to use his ipad now oh dear. thank you very much anthony and yes we're, we're hoping that the secretary of state will be able to overcome the technical barriers that is currently preventing him from joining us but um we'll we'll hope we'll come to him last uh, if hopefully he can join um but now i'd like to turn to uh, kate norgrove uh, who is the executive director of advocacy and campaigns at wwf uk um kate over to you Thank you very much, um, Sam and Anthony, for your remarks. Um, there's absolutely no doubt that we're in a really, really serious situation at the moment. Um, nature is in free fall. In fact, WWF's Living Planet report, which was only published last week, uh, two weeks ago rather, has shown that wildlife populations overall have declined on average globally by 68% since 1970, which is a, a crazy number. Um, in Latin America alone, the figure is more like 94%. Um, and we've all seen the fires from the California to the Arctic to the Amazon. Um, and the pandemic itself was caused by nature loss, which is driven by deforestation that has brought animals and people too close together, meaning that it's easy for crises like um, or for coronavirus and other viruses to jump from animals into the human population. So this really is starting to affect us. It's about as much about the survival of ourselves as it is about the survival of um of the planet. So nature is in free fall and we've got to stop it. Um, for the first time, this report that we did uh, also showed how it's possible to do that. Um, so the modelling that we did with 40 other academic institutions shows that conservation of these precious landscapes and species is by no means enough. You can't just put fences around these species and uh, keep humans out. And in fact, you wouldn't want to do that anyway. Um, the only way to protect uh, nature is to do it through tackling the way that we use our land, specifically the way that we produce and consume our food, um, which is why I really welcome what you said, Anthony, um, because now we've woken up to this fact, we now need to act. Um, and with 2021 coming up, uh, the UK's credibility depends on that ability to act. Um, and that's not just about acting on our world leading domestic agenda but also, as you said, Anthony, tackling our international footprint and our food system. So we know that we may be only 1% of domestic emissions, but at least half of our emissions come from the, the um, products that we produce overseas, which aren't actually counted in our national emissions. And we think that's more like 8% of global emissions, something around that range that's actually quite big. So our, our, although our domestic emissions aren't great, our international emissions through the food that we eat and the land uh, use uh, changes that we have abroad are, are, are large. So this is also about tackling our international footprint. Um, it's also true that more than 40% of the products imported into the UK come from countries with high or very high deforestation, weak governance and poor labour standards. And I just I want to be able to go to my corner shop, as I did this morning, and be absolutely sure that the chicken and the peanut butter that I'm buying is not produced using soy and palm oil grown on deforested land. I cannot bear the idea that my children, my nieces and nephews may be using the products of deforestation and wildlife loss because we, the British population, should not be the unwitting drivers of this loss and of these emissions. So uh, if I'm allowed, we need five things and I'll, and I'll talk through these um, hopefully again when 
um, the Secretary of State is able to join. Um, but we need one, a robust mandatory due diligence mechanism in the Environment Bill that goes beyond legality. Um, as you said, we've Sam, we've um, just launched this consultation on a mechanism like this, but it's not just based, it's just at the moment based on legality. The trouble is, is that most of the environmental impacts that happen in our supply chain happen legally in some of the most nature depleted areas of the world. So just think of the Amazon, uh, the Sahado, the Pantanal in Brazil at the moment. Most of that deforestation, those wildfires caused deliberately are uh, produced and um, deforested on legally deforested land. Uh, we need the the second thing is we need the government to respond in full to the recommendations in its own global resource initiative putting in law targets to measure and reduce our global footprint. Uh, the third thing is that we really need backup uh, from the Conservative Manifesto commitment to retain our high standards in our trade deals uh, by enshrining those in law. It would be such a pity if, um, if the, this due diligence mechanism was undermined by uh, trade deals that undermined those in turn. We need to invest in nature and climate by putting in law a net zero fiscal rule which would judge our domestic spending against these world leading commitments. And then the last thing is we need that domestic legislation to come back. It will be 200 days in on Monday uh, since uh, the Environment Bill was paused. And we need that to come back so that we can have the detail on that hugely welcome commitment by the Prime Minister to protect 30 percent of our land and seas for nature. So I just wanted to say one last thing, if I can, Sam, which is that it's an amazing opportunity, this, for the for the Conservative Party to turn its strong commitments to the environment into action. I'd really like to imagine a world where the UK used its new status as an independent coastal state, that independent nation to lead the world in substantial action to restore nature loss and bring people back into balance with the planet. Um, so welcome, Secretary of State. It's great to see you here. Thank you for coming. And uh, thank you for your commitment to nature and to the Conservative Environmental Network for this environment, for this opportunity. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Thanks, Kate, for those opening remarks. I think you yeah, set out very, very clearly the, the threat that we face from, from nature loss and some great suggestions as to how we in the UK can play our part in, in tackling those. Um, and yes, I add to your welcome to the Secretary of State, who I'm glad has now uh, been able to join us. Um, we'll give him time to get settled into the event, um, so we'll come to him last. Um, so our next speaker, therefore, is um, Bernice uh, Lee, uh, who's the Executive Director of the Hoffman Centre for Sustainable Resource Economy at the International Affairs Think Tank, Chatham House. Um, Bernice. Thank you. I mean, I think I was asked to talk a little bit about the international processes and the politics of the moment around biodiversity and habitat loss versus climate change. And I thought to myself, this is a Sunday afternoon. Do we really want to bring in two different United Nations processes without fearing that you are still digesting your Sunday lunch? And my conclusion is, well, actually, you know what? We are at that crunch point, as Kate just mentioned, where if Paris was indeed when the world started to really understand what climate change was about and turn what we know as a general threat into something specific and sets and sets of concrete action, the hope is indeed that Kunming this year that will have the biodiversity conference hosted by China will be the turning point for nature, just like Paris was for climate, that we will start seeing more understanding around all the bits and pieces that we need to do in order to get things to happen in the real economy. So if we can, we obviously as a geek, as a policy wonk, I can talk for hours about what exactly are the incentives that turn Paris into a success. 
But what it really, really means, ultimately, it boils down to actually having real economy impact of decisions made by governments, made by companies after Paris, and we need to see the same for nature. We know that nature and climate change are interwoven and are symbiotic, and that nature is at least a third of climate solutions. Nature is about building a resilient world. It will not have it without climate solutions. We know that it's about long-term food and natural security, about economic security, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, if it is about all of the above, we are lucky for two reasons this year. One is that, first of all, with the announcement that China made last week at what I call Zunga, the Zoom edition of the UN General Assembly, we now have a commitment from China for net zero by 2060. And that actually is an opening not only for climate change, but also for nature, on the basis that China being the host of Kunming, this gives all of us as international stakeholders a way to ask if China will also beef up its own commitment, but also global commitment around biodiversity and nature. The second thing that we are very lucky as well is that UK being the host of COP26, we have a prime minister and ministers, including those present, but also Minister Sir Goldsmith as well, who are both committed to making sure that nature and climate work together, aligned around the incentives that Kate and also Anthony outlined around hopefully trade, aid, finance, among others, where we will make sure that all these levers that we have, in, including com consumption and demand side question that Sam also outlined in the opening, that we can together actually make sure that these two regimes work together in tandem in such a way that it should deliver both climate and as well as biodiversity and habitat protection results and sustainable reuse results. Now, with COVID and everything else that has gone on at the moment, it is e easy to get ourselves into the mindset of a movie. And that means that we think of people who are supporting biodiversity losses as being horrible villains. But actually, the reality, as we all know, is that on the ground, people who actually often face no choice, no, no option but to basically ruin nature for all sorts of livelihood and development reasons. So it is therefore imperative that we create the kind of incentives for development, for other positive changes that actually will align in such a way that we don't fall ourselves into another bad movies where innocent people just wanting to make a living become villains in our horrible B-movie that will evolve. And with COVID being currently still part of a major actor in our B-movie, we must make sure the resources last much, much, much further than we have, and therefore making sure that it works both for nature and climate is a must. Thank you, Sam. I finish here. Thank you very much, Benice, for those excellent comments. Um, lots of questions, but we'll come to those uh, later. Um, so now to introduce our final panellist, um, the Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, George Eustace. I'm very glad that you were able to join us, George. <laughs> Yeah, thank you very much, Sam, and apologies um, for my nice a few technical issues um, uh, getting onto the call. Um, but look, the next 12 months is going to be an incredibly important year for international nature. Obviously, we've got COP26 uh, coming late next year now in October, and we think that uh, nature-based solutions could be a major part of tackling climate change in the future. We think it could... Uh, you know, account for up to 30% of the work that we need to do uh, in that. And so uh, getting nature-based solutions on the agenda at COP26 uh, is a really big uh, focus for the department. Now, Zach Goldsmith's doing a lot of work on this. It's a big year for a second reason, and that's, of course, we've got um, 
Dean under the Convention on Biodiversity, and that this year will be revising and looking again at the targets on biodiversity. Now, the HE targets that were set around 10 years ago um, were an important step forward, uh, better than anything had gone before, but they were rather sort of uh, undefined in some cases, difficult to measure in others. And crucially, there wasn't really the, the monitoring to back it up and probably as well it's fair to say that because climate change has um has had the most political investment from governments around the world there was not sufficient political will to move uh, government to to act to achieve those he targets so we will be um working with china and others to try to get a much more meaningful set of targets it's likely to be a and yeah, a number of maybe maybe four or five goals that will uh, sit under um, you know the vision that they have for 2050. And then what we want is to have 20 targets that are uh, more tangible, more measurable, more meaningful, and also crucially to get government commitments to actual action so that we can deliver them next time round. Now we've um, done quite a few things as a UK government to set the pace here. I think um, <clears throat> the Prime Minister recently launched the nature uh, for the leaders pledge for nature and we've currently got 70 countries signed up for that and that's really a set of 10 key actions that government pledge they will take and this is a very important stepping stone i think to what we want to uh, achieve uh, next year both at cbd uh, and at the cop 26 as well uh, we've also pledged to protect 30 percent of our terrestrial land by 2030 and again, it's one of the key pledges we want to try to move all uh, government uh, towards. Um, there's other things that um, we're doing through the Environment Bill, the um, due diligence um, amendments that we're working on there that we intend to bring forward in the Environment Bill. And these will basically make it a legal requirement for um, producers and manufacturers in this country who import products like palm oil and other forest risk products to actually take much more care and due diligence in their supply chain so that we um, can try to prevent and reduce uh, you know, the appalling uh, level of deforestation that we see uh, in some of the rainforests uh, in particular. Of course, um, if we want to show leadership, we've got to lead from home as well. So next year, we will begin the uh, agricultural transition away from the old area-based cap payments, um, the straightforward area-based subsidies, instead to a entirely new system where we pay farmers for public goods, what they do to uh, enhance the environment, improve um, water quality and soil health, uh, creating space for nature uh, on their farms. And of course, through the, the third tier of that policy, um, ecosystem services and, um, uh, you know, where we can get big woodland creation and peatland restoration for instance so we're taking um, a very clear stance and there's lots of interest around the world in what we're doing on our future agriculture policy and finally of course as a couple of other speakers have mentioned there's the environment bill uh, we anticipate that this will resume its passage uh, through the commons at the end of this month uh, but we've also not held back in terms of advancing the policies that we um, will be bringing forward under the powers in that environment bill. So the recruitment campaign for the first chair 
uh, of the OEP is well underway, uh, and that will be uh, established in shadow form from the new year uh, before becoming fully operational in the middle of next year. Um, and we've also started some engagement uh, with some key stakeholders on the future targets regime. And for me, the targets framework that uh, is provided for in the Environment Bill is probably the most uh, critical thing. We want those in place by October 2022. We want a set of meaningful targets that can really uh, drive policy towards seeing an improvement in all of those four key uh, environmental assets. That's uh, you know water, biodiversity, um, uh, and uh, and air and and, uh, so, and waste reduction as well. So um, very big year in the sense that we're going to have uh, several flagship bills uh, coming to fruition through Parliament. We will start uh, introducing um, changes to policy under those bills, but a really big year internationally as well. Thank you very much, Secretary of State, and it's it's great to hear that um, the Environment Bill might be coming back soon, and to hear all the other plans that you have over the next year. It's certainly a very busy and packed agenda. Um, if I can come straight back to you actually with a, with a question um, from, from me, abusing my chair's privilege. Um, one thing I'd be interested to hear you talk a bit more about is um, trade policy. So in, in my introduction, um, I sort of talked about how uh, we now have this new lever, which we didn't have before Brexit, um, where we can affect the environment overseas. Um, where we can do more to improve the environment overseas. How how do you, how would you like to see government use use its trade policy for in an environmentally beneficial way? And what what are the kind of opportunities you see there? Well, look, we're looking at trade policy in um, two areas really that are relevant to DEFRA. One is we've got a clear manifesto commitment to protect food standards, and um, uh, you know that means uh, preserving our high standards of animal welfare making sure that our producers aren't unfairly undermined um, by lower standard production in other countries. So we um, have developed approaches, um, a combination of using the so-called SPS chapter uh, in the um, uh, in any trade deal to protect food safety and uh, food standards. But when it comes to animal welfare, uh, we will be using tariff policy to ensure that we have preferential access to producers in other countries that meet our standards, you know, irrespective of what their national law might be. And this would be an exciting step forward, really, a uh, very interesting uh, area for us to uh, develop and to pioneer as a new country uh, returning to negotiating its trade deals for the first time. But when it comes to the environment, it's a much more um, established process where, unlike animal welfare, where we have to use tariff policy to reflect that, um, in WTO it's much um, more established that you can you know, argue for environmental standards and environmental requirements as part of the trade deal. And I know that Liz Truss is looking very carefully at this and is very keen to ensure that we can use uh, the trade negotiations that we do uh, to uh, advance some of our international objectives on uh, the environment as well. Great, thank you very much for that, for that answer. Um, I want to come to Kate now. Um, Kate, I'm interested to hear more from you, um, reflecting on some of the, what the Secretary of State just said um, about the big biodiversity summit that's taking place in, uh, in China next year. What do you think the UK needs to do um, to be kind of credible at that summit in terms of having a really strong domestic record, which we can then, uh, from which we can then encourage other countries to go further? 
Thank you, Sam, and thank you very much, Secretary of State. It's it's fantastic to hear that uh, the you're hoping and expecting the due diligence um, mechanism to go into the Environment Bill, uh, which will come back at the end of the month. Um, very very pleased to to hear that, and we welcome it very much. Um, in order to have to the credibility to stand up in Kunming next year, and in indeed uh, at Glasgow, we would really like to see. Uh, a few things really. The first is this robust mandatory due diligence mechanism, which we think should go beyond legality so that companies, which, as you know, many of which welcome this very much, will be able to report on the environmental impacts of their supply chain, most of which already happen legally in some of the most nature depleted areas of the world. So thinking of Brazil um, or the Sahado, um also in Brazil, which is, uh, holds the world's 5% of the world's biodiversity, um, but uh, where you can legally deforest uh, up to 90% of the Sahado, which wouldn't then be included in our in our due diligence mechanism. So whilst we really uh, you know, are very welcoming of that and for it to go into the environment bill, having it based on more than legality would make a, a huge difference and would mean that my, my kids, for example, can go into the local corner shop and buy food without worrying that it comes from deforested uh, or nature-depleted land. Um, the second thing, and you talked about targets, um, very happy to hear about targets being such a focus. Um, we'd really love it if the government res would respond in full to the recommendations from the Global Resource Initiative, uh, which are about putting in law targets to measure and reduce our global footprint overall. We were talking earlier with Anthony about how um, how many of the, the UK's emissions are not just about domestic emissions, but the emissions that we have through our global footprint. Um, and so tackling those through putting targets in to measure and reduce our global footprint would be really, really important. And we really need to, to see that uh, Conservative Manifesto commitment to retaining high standards in our trade deals uh, enshrined into law, because although no country goes into a trade negotiation with the intention of lowering standards, the reality of our negotiations is that trade-offs will often happen cars for data, food for the financial services, and for the UK to show genuine environmental leadership going into 2021, we really, as an independent nation, uh, need to see those trade standards in law and to see that when we export our, our expertise in producing high quality food, uh, we can then maximise the public goods that sustainable farming can provide, as we are planning to do in our own agriculture um, bill. So, Really excited to see some of those things taken forward and, uh, yeah, look forward to hearing more. Thanks, Kate. Um, Anthony, now, if I could turn to you, and I know that you um, have an interest as well as in environmental matters, in financial matters, um, and I'd be quite interested to hear uh, your reflections, I guess, on what the UK can do as a kind of financial uh, leader um, with our kind of world-leading City of London financial expertise to encourage more um, financing of, of nature, na nature restoration projects. Um, and I think there are a few initiatives in the pipeline, things like the uh, task force that's looking at nature-related um, financial disclosure, um, things like the Dasgupta review that the Treasury has commissioned looking at the economics of biodiversity, are you hopeful that um, through some of these initiatives and other things we might do, we can get the, the finance uh, going into nature projects that, that we need to to stop the kind of catastrophic nature loss that we're seeing at the moment? Uh, absolutely. 
I'm very hopeful that we can, and I think it's very important that we do, that the financial system uh, drives where investment is, as it were. Uh, and what you've got to do is make sure that uh, companies that are uh, perhaps investing money, spending money, transitioning from uh, high carbon uh, uh, business model to low carbon business model, they get the finance uh, to actually do that. And it can be, what we're seeing is an enormous transition in the global economy from, from high carbon output to low carbon output. That's creating all sorts of winners and losers within the system. Uh, that isn't currently properly priced in. And that's why you, you mentioned the um, the, the uh, financial climate-related financial disclosures, which was driven by uh, uh, initially by Britain. And that, that needs to spread uh, throughout the sort of stock exchange of the world so that people can actually, investors can actually see what the climate risks are of individual companies. But those risks are taken into account when people invest or don't invest or lend money to them. Uh, so that if a company has got an unsustainable business model, if it's, uh, say, a, a car company that's uh, not planning to do any electric vehicles and carrying on building the internal combustion engine, even after it's planned, then they won't get any finance and they will be punished for it by the financial system. Whereas a company, just to pick up the car model again, like Tesla, which is purely electric vehicles, uh, actually they're rewarded by having huge investments and they can then uh, expand their production. Uh, and because so many, because we are a global financial centre, the rules that we uh, instigate here do ripple throughout the uh, global financial system. And we need to do lots of diplomacy as well. Uh, but actually, we can show real leadership there. And that's why I'm very glad that I mentioned in my remarks, uh, Mark Carney uh, is... Um, uh, is driving that for COP26. And if we get that, as there's lots of other things of COP26, obviously, but if that's uh, one of the key things as a global commitment to do that, then I think that will really help reward companies that are aiming a net zero and will punish companies that are uh, dragging their heels. Thanks for that, Anthony. Um, so final question before we go to the, um, to the audience Q&A, um, and it's to Bernice. Um, there's a, a vibrant debate going on within the Conservative movement at the moment about how the UK should approach its relationship with China. Um, and obviously this is particularly important in an environmental context because China is hosting the, the UN Biodiversity Summit next year and we're hoping to kind of work with them collaboratively uh, with our own climate conference happening in Glasgow. What, given, given the importance of what we've been talking about today, how, what would be kind of your advice um, to, to the UK government and to parliamentarians about how we should approach that Chinese relationship so that we can get the outcomes for nature that we that we need. Uh, thank you, Sam, for this extremely easy question. So <laughs> what I would start by saying is that what we saw last week was that the president of China has publicly announced his own personal commitment to climate change and also tying himself to a strong environmental outcome. And this is certainly something that any nations in the world, including ourselves here in the UK, should make the best use of to make sure that both China delivers at home, as promised, as well as delivers globally. Now, as, as those who follow China-related environmental policy would know, a lot is still being played in the context of the next five-year plan coming up in the next couple of months being negotiated so a lot of the specifics around those, I think, are going to determine whether or not it is possible for some of the promises to be fulfilled. So my, my, if there is a general advice, the answer is, if we are interested in global environmental integrity, being able to be supportive of the environmental undertakings in China is part of a global solution. 
Secondly, being able to work with China on delivering strong biodiversity outcome equally is a big part of being able to deliver nature for climate, but also for other reasons that you have outlined so convincingly yourself in the open. Now, now the, the, the big question is whether or not, what are the specifics? Now, the UK and China and your chair, Ben Caldercott of your Conservative Environment Network, has been working on some of these finance guidelines with between UK and China. So I would, I would have expected that if indeed China has made that commitment, the next step would be about the finance related as issues. Perhaps Anthony can also add around, you know, both internally, but also in terms of his overseas financing to make sure that his offering is indeed consistent internally and externally. Great. Thank you. Um, so let's now go over to the, um, uh, the questions that have been submitted via Slido. And um, we've got 20 minutes of these. Keep sending them in. Um, and we'll we'll review them. Um, so the first one, I'm going to bunch together a couple, um, which both relate to kind of labelling of food products. So Mike Ballinger has asked, should we have an environmental rag raising on all food products? Um, and Sonal Noble has asked, should the British public know the carbon footprints of the products of the item they are purchasing? Uh, and he thinks that UK products would uh, be more competitive if we had such a measure. What, what do people think about labelling as an approach to kind of solving or tackling some of these deforestation-related issues? Um, might ask the Secretary of State to, to comment on this first. Um, thanks, Sam. I mean, look, labelling. Um, there is some scope for it, and um, we can we, we can look at that. The, the difficulty always with um, going too far on labelling, though, is if you've got a you know supplier who might be bringing goods from you know, various different areas. And um, it's very it's very hard to get these things accurate if you make them mandatory. So we have done, you know, for instance, in animal welfare areas, the successful mandatory labelling when it comes to things like free-rolling dogs. It's much more complicated when you get to composite products like a, you know, a pizza that might um, be drawing products and different types of products from many different sources. And so calculating a, a figure on a product like that that is meaningful gets much harder. So um, I think there's a role for them. We've got obviously some quite good uh, you know, environmental, you know, voluntary schemes already. Mm. The uh, leaf mark, which, you know, uh, growers in this country, um, uh, fruit and veg often will sign up to. And that is a, you know, a sort of gold standard for um, environmentally sensitive farming. You've obviously got then the Soil Association uh, organic labels, and there are a, a few others as well. So these can work, but it tends it tends to be quite difficult, in my experience, to legislate for. And when we've looked at it in some areas, it, it creates uh, quite a lot of extra complexity. You, you need a very simple, you can do it on very simple uh, commodities where there's an easy calculation to be made. Thanks, George. Um, wondering whether Kate might have, have any thoughts on this as well. Yeah, just to add, uh, similar to the Secretary of State, that it, that labelling can work. Um, it's complex, but the evidence is quite mixed as to how much it does work, actually. Um, I mean, you just got to look at um, obesity targets and plans to know that sometimes it, it works and sometimes it doesn't. But essentially, food labelling isn't really enough. Um, 
you need deforestation, wildlife loss, um, emissions to be cut out of the supply chain at source. Otherwise, when you get to the, the corner shop or the chicken shop, uh, you will know that everything you are able to buy in there, none of it contains deforestation and wildlife loss. You wouldn't need the labelling in the first place. So we need to have a more systemic answer that stops it coming into the supply chain in the first place. Um, yeah, that's why we that's why we need it. Thanks, Kate. Um, I'm going to move on to the next question now, so I just want to try and get through quite a, uh, a few because uh, we've had lots being submitted. So the next one, I'm going to, again, cluster a couple around um, aid and aid spending. Um, so, uh, sorry, um, so Mike Ballinger has asked, how can we use our foreign aid budget to help other countries reduce their CO2 emissions? Um, and then, so that's a kind of positive question about how can we use aid effectively to uh, to fund certain projects overseas that might benefit nature or, or climate. But then we've also had a question of um, about uh, what does the panel think of the fact that we are still spending significant amounts of our aid budget funding fossil fuel infrastructure projects abroad? And indeed, that's that's also uh, the case through the UK export finance as well, where we um, use export credit to finance um, new fossil fuel infrastructure overseas. So that's an example of where aid at the moment is being used to um, yeah, to, to cause environmental damage. Um, what, what do people think we should we should do with our aid budget in order to align it with these these nature goals that we've been talking about today? Um, who wants to come in on that? Bernice, can I come to you? Sure. I mean, I think that it is pretty clear that environmental integrity and having high standard is, a, is extremely important for our competitiveness in the future, both in terms of our domestic policies as well as external policy. And because we want to be a hub where sustainable, clean finance coalesce, not those that the other way around. And therefore, it is extremely important that we start setting some boundaries around what are things that are no-go areas, including, for example, using public money to finance carbon-intensive developments elsewhere, is probably belong to that particular category. And that is not only in terms of where how we spend aid money, but also how we would like aid money that we put into international institutions as well to be spent. So it is about not only what we do, but also where we would, how we would like to shape multinational development banks and others where our money goes into uh, will, will direct its funding. And in terms of the support, I mean, I'm, I'm delighted to know that there has been, you know, the 30% earmark of the 11 and 6 billion, you know, that hopefully that will go to nature. And I think increasingly there is, as I said earlier, understanding around the symbiotic nature between nature and development and good environmental practice and development. And so making sure that nature delivers is part of good development practice, which is part of our mandate in terms of overseas development aid. So I don't see any necessary problem in making sure that we design those in such a way that are mutually supportive. And therefore, we obviously should be spending those money to deliver all of the above. And especially when I think you didn't you introduce Sam as well by talking about some of the connections to, for example, other things, other things that we're living through right now, such as synoptic diseases, among others. And therefore, this, 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 it will become part of the win-win positive agenda that we need to create together. Thank you. Um, Anthony, you mentioned uh, aid spending in your introduction. One of you, anything to add about how, how we can best leverage that uh, stream of finance to, to deliver these goals? Well, I, I mean, I completely agree with what Bernice was saying, that there's a, um, a symbiotic relationship between development 
and uh, environmental uh, protection. And you don't, I mean, having seen a lot of environment projects uh, in around the, the developing world, uh, you you are really not helping people uh, if you are fueling their environmental destruction. So I think it does need to be tied up. And I think, I mean, the, the DFID already, we're all part of the FCO now, uh, already does a bit of that. But I would like to see it a bit more mainstreamed in our uh, aid spending. Uh, but I would also, uh, I think there ought to be joined up government between our uh, things like the export finance guarantee and uh, some of the aid spending and fossil fuel uh, investments. And that if we're spending a huge national effort to get to net zero by 2050, uh, huge amounts of work for that, uh, then actually it should apply to everything that we're doing as a, as a government. Thanks, Anthony. Um, Secretary of State, any, anything to add on, on, on international development? Yes. I think it's got a very important role to play, and obviously we um, we have a, uh, a slice already of the ODA budget, you know, relatively modest slice. But um, when the budget had to be you know, revised a little bit earlier uh, this summer because of the, the difficulties, generally speaking, the funding and the projects that we've had for you know both international climate but nature as well uh, were all um, protected, and so it, it's got an important role to play. We've got to also um, you know, got our um, Nature for Climate uh, Fund as well, which is a significant fund, and quite a lot of that is spent uh, overseas. And I think we've got, as we leave the EU, a really important role to play as a, as a country trying to uh, help and support some of those developing countries deal with what are quite you know, difficult challenges for them. And we've got to really just build, build those relationships, be willing to help put some funding in as well to do it, and, and we do that. Export finance has been a bit controversial this year, but there was a, um, a big project. Um, uh, I think it was in Mozambique from uh, memory for a, um, uh, you know, a, um, effectively a, a gas, uh, again, a new gas plant. It's a complex area. I mean, government is looking uh, at this. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult area because obviously I think we can all accept that if you were replacing um, an old, uh, rickety gas plant with something that was um, much more energy efficient and new, well, then that's a step forward. And also, if you were offering expertise and, um, you know, to try and help improve the um, carbon efficiency of some of those power plants, I think we can see that's a positive thing. But certainly, we also need to our our mind on the sort of longer term objective of of moving everybody to renewables as well so it is something that um you know that is being uh, that is being looked at but it's a it's quite a complex area mm, thank you for that um kate i'd like to put to you and the next sort of cluster of questions which is around um the role of biomass and uh, subsidies for biomass in uh, in contributing to some of this deforestation challenge we've been talking about so simon hinks has asked why is the uk continuing to american forests as biomass CO2 emissions are one and a half times that of coal, three times that of, of gas, um, but yet they're recorded as zeroing. Um, and uh, Sachin Sinha has asked, UK subsidy of £1.5 billion yearly, importing wood for electricity. Um, should the UK continue be subsidising burning trees for electricity? Hello, Kate. Could you, uh, could sorry, you sorry. I was just uh, just unmuting myself. Uh, no, no, we shouldn't. We shouldn't be. And I, I suppose I think it comes back to what we were just discussing in terms of um, coherence of policy across government in the way that um, 
as, as we were just discussing, for example, the UK spending as much on aid on supporting fossil fuels as it does to tackle climate change through the International Climate Fund. So across all, we need cross-government policy on this absolutely key priority. Um, and, uh, you know, and the questioner is right, biomass isn't a genuine renewable and we need to move away from fossil fuels. Um, Secretary of State, I know this is a, a Bayes responsibility, but um, uh, interested in, in, your, in your thoughts on the kind of sustainability and deforestation okay. aspect of biomass and how we can avoid the risk of, of contributing to deforestation. Well, obviously, you know, biomass linked to um, deforestation is, uh, uh, doesn't contribute anything at all. I think we all understand that much. But we are looking just, um, you know, domestically, biomass done well, where you might bring certain woodland back into um, better health, where it might actually take more carbon out and where you can use that renewable resource. Um, you know, all of the evidence shows that could play quite a significant role in helping us meet um, carbon budget five. And so, you know, biomass is something that we, we shouldn't rule out because, well, we can all accept that the... The end goal that we're working to uh, when we get to net zero is moving away from fossil fuels altogether. You know, along the way, as we try to hit those key <laughs> milestones, there could be some you know interim technologies that move us um, in, an, in a significant way in the right direction, and we shouldn't therefore rule it out altogether. Thank you, uh, Secretary of State. Um, going to try and get a couple more questions in so one area of the environment that we've not talked about um so far is our marine environment um and the uk government has uh part led the the, the campaign globally to protect 30 percent of our oceans by 2030 um we've got a question from sends oceans ambassador um mark uh who says that uh, the commitment uh, the 30 by 30 commitment is most welcome um but should the government now be um leading on this by banning bottom trawling in marine protected areas to allow the uh, seabeds in those uh, sort of marine habitats around UK waters to recover. Um, who wants to go first on that? Maybe Secretary of State? Yes, well, um, most of the um, marine conservation zones would already not allow uh, bottom trawling. They, there's often bylaws that would prevent that. But if, it, if that's the feature that you're trying to protect, so um, it depends really on the individual site and what species and what features you're trying to protect. And there are also instances where it is possible to have a marine protected area and allow fitting to uh, take, take place in zones within the area, but not within you know, more sensitive features. So that's generally been the approach to date. But I think it's also worth noting that you know, we had the um, Benyon review uh, earlier this summer into highly protected marine areas. Um, and that is something that we're looking at and we intend to pilot. And these are areas, it's one of a better term, a bit like a, a rewilding project, you know, in the ocean where you have uh, areas that you set aside and where you, you know, you remove all kind of man-made man activity, whether that's, um, you know, drilling for wind turbines, laying cables, fishing, whatever it might be. And some of the evidence where this has been done in other parts of the world is you do get, you know, a different kind of plateau of species abundance through doing that. So I think it's, um, it's an important area that we are looking at, but also, you know, we should just, um, I think we should recognize that in most of those um, marine conservation zones where bottom trawling would damage the features, there would already be a bylaw that prevented it. 
Thanks. Anyone else want to come in on that one or should we move on? I'd love to come in if I can. Yes, please um, do. I think this goes back to the fact that we really need an ocean recovery program that recovers biodiversity underwater, as some of the question was saying, because the sea is so important for food, tourism, biodiversity. And, and actually, although um, marine protected areas are supposed to be protected, as the questioner was saying, I, actually, I think there is more is allowed in those areas than you would have thought. Um, we do need some highly protected areas. Um, and we should make recovery uh, much more of a priority. It comes back to this idea, really, that you can protect areas as much as you like. But if on the other side, so, for example, if we were to, to designate 30% uh, of land and ocean um, uh, protected areas around the world, which is we're, rightly what we're asking for, um, if you're then deforesting the, the rest of the 70% of land and ocean um, on the other hand, then then you're never going to get the results you want. Um, so whilst we welcome the Benyon review, uh, we still do need to see more of uh, a sense of highly protected areas rather than uh, just protected areas. It's not just enough to designate 30% of our land. We need to see the domestic legislation that would stop uh, bottom trawling as, as the um, questioner asked about. Right, thank you. I'm very conscious we've only got five, well, four minutes now actually until the end of the session and we've got to finish on time. Um, so I'm going to squeeze in one question, um, which maybe just one of you might want to answer and then uh, if people want to make any kind of closing remarks, then uh, please do. Um, so I'm going to pitch this to Anthony. So this is Council, Sen Councillor Paul Haslam. Uh, he's asked, how will we levy tariffs on the US, for example, around food standards uh, in such a one-sided deal? Um, who needs who uh, and have we got sufficient muscle um, in the negotiations to be able to, to get that demand through? Um, Anthony, because I know you wrote a Conservative home piece about well, it. I, I did indeed, and um, I mean, George is actually in a far better position to answer this than me because it's more <laughs> I, I, I certainly support I mean, the thing that, that uh, the Secretary of State mentioned earlier about having uh, differential tariffs and actually, uh, you know, taking into account, you know, punishing those uh, who do providers who have more environmental degradation or lower animal welfare standards and providing incentives for those who have higher animal welfare standards. Uh, it is all among the negotiations with the with the US. Uh, uh, I was talking about this with Liz Trust uh, a few days ago. I mean, it is a very clearly a very complicated set of negotiations. And the most important thing is to be clear from the outset about what we actually want and what is acceptable uh, for the UK. Great. Thanks, Anthony. Um, Bernice, um, are there answers to that question or any, any final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, just building on that, I think that my understanding of WTO jurisprudence in general, it would suggest that our commitment to the environment and integrity in our policymaking and lawmaking process is the best defense against any potential challenge for any policy that we would implement based on environmental reasons. And that is as true for due diligence as it is true for trade-related questions. So on the last point I would like to make is to, in some ways, reinforce what Kate said earlier, which is that I think the legality is an excellent starting point. Yet at the same time, as we all know, if the future is about environmental integrity being a guarantor of future competitiveness and that our companies would as much welcome it as we all do, that we are making sure that there's a strong life cycle and, and analysis around deforestation related impacts. And therefore, let's take legality as a starting point, but really the full life cycle impact being the ultimate goal in terms of how we would like our supply chain to evolve into. Thank you. Thank you, Venice. And um, Kate. 
Yes, just to support exactly what Benny said, we really, really very much welcome uh, the consultation on due diligence, um, but we would like to see it um, be based on uh, more than legality in order to make sure that the legal deforestation that happens around the world in some of our most nature depleted areas uh, is also not allowed in to the supply chain so my kids can go to the corner shop uh, without worrying about it. Um, the other thing on, on the trade deals is, is really to emphasise just how important it is for, uh, for us to put environmental or high environmental standards into law. Um, I mean, the, one of the previous questions around food labelling is a classic example of that. We know that uh, US negotiators are, are currently trying to um, get us to reduce uh, the need for food labelling in the UK. And we wouldn't want to, I mean, despite the fact there are mixed results, we want to be able to have the freedom to be able to put food labels on around the environmental impact of our food if we'd like to. We've got a huge opportunity here to turn this commitment that the Conservative Party has shown to the environment into action. And I really think we should imagine this world where the UK leads into 2021 with the world leading domestic legislation in the Environment Bill and the Agriculture Bill. And we're really hopeful mm. from what we've seen so mm. far. Um, and then to use our relationship as we negotiate um, around Glasgow and Kunming into 2021 to make that an international uh, obligation on producer and consumer countries around due diligence and tackling our supply chain. So excited and looking forward to uh, working with the Secretary of State to do that. Thank you. And the final, final word to the Secretary of State. Thank you, Sam. And I'll, I'll try to be brief. I only wanted to, to wrap up on time. The, the short, to answer the question, um, the UK does have a, a powerful negotiating position because uh, the price of some people measured by import uh, value, the UK is the third largest market in the world after only China and Japan. And that's because it's quite a large and um, profitable market, but it's also a, a market where we import quite a lot of our food, unlike others like Germany, uh, France and the US. So that puts us in a very strong position when it comes to these negotiations, and that means we can uh, insist on some of the things that I've uh, mentioned. But on the other side, I would also say uh, it's important that we carry the rest of the world with us. So we've got a consultation out on the due diligence issue. We are looking at this. But the um, the, the track record of, of um, too much lecturing of other countries hasn't always been successful. And so it's getting that balance right between using our negotiating leverage to um, to deliver change, but also using our soft power and our aid budget uh, to carry countries with us as well. And that's that's the balance we've always got to strike here. Thank you very much, Secretary of State. Um, so um, with that, we will close the event. I'd just like to say a huge thank you to our speakers for giving up their time. I'm hugely grateful for your comments uh, and for answering the questions. Um, I'm, I'm grateful to everyone who's tuned in to listen to this panel event. Um, and lastly, particularly grateful to WWF for their kind sponsorship of the event. Bye-bye.